Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Yasmin Qureshi. Yeah. Number one, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Yasmin Qureshi. Mr Speaker, yesterday the campaign group fighting cuts at the West Cumberland Hospital were due to deliver a 30,000-strong petition to Downing Street. Despite having a slot booked, they were turned away at the gates and told, today isn't a good day, come back after Thursday. How can the Prime Minister justify this disgraceful dismissal of the people of Copenhagen? Prime Minister! A petition was indeed delivered to number 10. The petition was accepted by number 10 Downing Street yesterday. So I suggest to the, the Honourable Lady that she considers uh, what she said in her question. Uh, but I am aware of the uh, issues that have been raised around West Cumberland Hospital. I'm aware of those because the very good Conservative candidate in Copeland... Trudy Harrison has indeed raised those issues with me. She made very clear she wants to see no downgrading of services at West Cumberland Hospital. She's made that clear to me and to health ministers. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, I've recently been meeting many of my local head teachers in the High Peak, and they're concerned about the new national funding formula. And can my right hon. Friend assure me that when we decide on the funding for our schools, that we will look at unavoidable costs such as the national inf- uh, inf- apprenticeship levy and things like that to ensure they do have the money that they need to educate our children? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Minister. Well, thank my honourable friend for raising this. It is an, the question of schools funding and the system we have for schools funding is important. I think the current system is unfair. It isn't transparent and it's out of date. That's been a general view across uh, for some time now. Because it, the problem is it can't support the aspiration of all our children to get a great education. And we do indeed want to see children um, being able to get the school, the education that they deserve that ensures that they can go as far as their talents and hard work take them. The the Labour government did nothing to address the funding system. We are looking at that funding system. It is. It is. It is. It is a consultation, and I'm sure the comments and the issue my friend has raised will be noted by the Secretary of State for Education. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. When hospitals are struggling to provide essential care, why is the Prime Minister's government cutting the number of beds in our National Health Service? Prime Minister. Thanks to the medical advances, to the use of technology, to the quality of care, what we see, what we see in uh, hospital stays is actually that the average length of time for staying in hospital has virtually halved since the year 2000. But let's actually look at Labour's record on this issue. In, in the last six years of the last Labour government, 25,000 hospital beds were cut. But we don't, we don't even need to go as far back as that. Let's just look at what was Labour's policy before the last election. Because before the last election, 
The Right Honourable Member for Lee, a former Labour uh, Shadow Health Secretary, said the following. What I'd cut are hospital beds. Labour policy cut hospital beds. Jeremy Corbyn! Mr Speaker, in 2010, there was the highest ever level of satisfaction with the National Health Service delivered by a Labour government. The British Medical Association tells us, Mr Speaker, the British Medical Association, its doctors, that 15,000 beds have been cut in the last six years, the equivalent of 24 hospitals, and as a result, we have longer waiting times at A&E, record delayed charges and more people on waiting lists. The Prime Minister claims the NHS is getting the money it needs, so why is it that one in six of A&E units in England are set for closure or downgrading? Prime Minister, gentlemen, what is happening and what has happened since 2010 in A&E? We see 1,500 more emergency care doctors. That includes 600 more A&E consultants. We've got 2,400 more paramedics. We have more people being seen in accident and emergency every single week under this government. What the NHS? He talks about what the NHS needs. What the NHS needs is more doctors, we're giving it more doctors. What it needs is more funding, we're giving it more funding. What it does not need is a bankrupt economy, which is exactly what Labour would give it. Jeremy Corbyn! Mr Speaker, I asked the Prime Minister why one in six A&E units are currently set for closure or downgrading. She didn't answer. One of the problems, and she well knows this, is the £4.6 billion cut to social care, which has a knock-on effect. And her friend, the Tory chair of the Local Government Association, Lord Porter, has said, and I quote, extra council tax income will not bring in anywhere near enough money to alleviate the growing pressure on social care. Two weeks ago, we found out about the sweetheart deal with Tory Surrey. When will, when will the other 151 social services departments in England get the same as the Surrey deal? Prime Minister. The Right Honourable Gentleman refers to the questions he asked me about Surrey County Council two weeks ago. Those claims were utterly destroyed the same afternoon. Asking the same question, he should stand up and apologise. Mr. Speaker, the Mr. Speaker, far from apologising, it's the Prime Minister who ought to be reading her correspondence and answering the letter from 62 council leaders representing social services authorities who want to know if they're going to get the same deal as Surrey as they are grappling with a crisis which has left over a million people not getting the social care they need. Mr Speaker, we opposed the Tory cuts in the NHS which involved scrapping of nurses' bursaries because we feared it would discourage people from entering training. Her government 
said removing funding for nurses' bursaries would create an extra 10,000 training places in this Parliament. Has this target been met? Prime Minister, there are 10,000 more training places available for nurses in the NHS. But the, the right honourable gentleman talks about the amount of money that is being spent on the National Health Service. It is this Conservative government that is putting the extra funding into the NHS. And I remind the right honourable gentleman, I remind the right honourable gentleman that we are spending 1.3 billion more on the NHS this year than Labour planned to do if they'd won the election. Mr Speaker, my questions were about the social services funding to pay for social care. No answer. My questions were about the number of nursery training, nurse training places that are being brought in. No answer. In reality, 10,000 fewer places have been filled because there are fewer applications. There is a problem being built up for the future. And in addition to that, the Royal College of Midwives estimates that the shortage of 3,500 midwives in England and the Royal College of Nursing warned the nursing workforce is in crisis and if fewer nurses graduate in 2020 it will exacerbate what is already an unsustainable situation. Will the Prime Minister at least be, commit herself to reinstating the nurses' bursary? Minister. The right honourable gentleman asked me a question about nursing training places, which I answered. I have to say to him, if he doesn't like the answer he gets, he can't just carry on asking the same question if I've answered it previously. He's talking, he's talking about all these issues in relation to what is happening in the NHS. Let's just look at what is happening in the NHS. We have 1,800. 1,800 more midwives in the NHS since 2010. We have more people being seen in accident and emergency since 2010. We have more operations taking place every week in the National Health Service. Our National Health Service staff are working hard. They're providing a quality of care for patients up and down the country. What they don't need is a Labour Party policy that leads to a bankrupt economy because Labour's policy is you spend money on everything, which means you bankrupt the economy, have no money to spend on anything. That doesn't help doctors and nurses, it doesn't help patients, it doesn't help the NHS, and it doesn't help ordinary working families up and down this country. Mr Speaker, yes, let's look at the National Health Service. Let's thank all those that work so hard in our National Health Service, but recognise the pressures they are under. Today, the Marie Curie Foundation Trust finds that nurses are so overstretched they cannot provide the high-quality care needed for patients at the very end of their lives. The lack of care in community prevents people the dignity of dying at home. There is a nursing shortage. Something should be done about it, such as reinstating the nurses' bursary. Mr Speaker, her government has put the NHS and social care in a state of emergency. Nine out of ten NHS trusts are unsafe. 18,000 patients a week are waiting. 
Mr Speaker, I repeat the figure. 18,000 patients a week are waiting on trolleys in hospital corridors. 1.2 million, often very dependent. Mr Speaker, it seems to me that some members don't want to be concerned about the fact that there are 1.2 million elderly people not getting the care that they need. The legacy of her government will be blighting our NHS for decades. Fewer hospitals, fewer A&E departments, fewer, fewer nurses and fewer people getting the care they need. We need a government that puts the NHS first and will invest in our NHS. First of all, I have to say to the right honourable gentleman that he should, he should consider correcting the record because 54% of hospital trusts are considered good or outstanding, quite different from the figure that he has shown. Secondly, I will take no lessons on the NHS from the party from the party oh oh the deputy leader of the labor party says we should take lessons from the nhs i won't take any lessons from the party that presided over mid staffs hospital and the Should take, we say, they say we should learn lessons. I'll tell you who should learn lessons. It's the Labour Party who still fail to recognise. If you're going to fund the NHS and we are putting more money in, there are more doctors, more operations, more nurses. If you're going to fund the NHS, you need a strong economy. But now we know Labour have a different sort of phrase now for their approach to these things. Remember Labour used to talk about boom and bust? Now it's no longer boom and bust, it's borrow and bankrupt. must get through backbenchers questions and the Prime Minister's answers to them. Mr Michael Tomlinson. Mr Speaker, Brendan Cox will meet today with the Duchess of Cornwall uh, to launch plans to bring communities together over the weekend of the 17th and 18th of June to mark the first anniversary of our colleague Joe's death. The aim of this, which has been called the Great Get Together, is for more than 10 million people across the country to come together as communities and neighbours for events such as street parties, for picnics and, Mr Speaker, even bake-offs. Will the Prime Minister uh, join me and agree that such events are a moment of national uh, reflection but also celebration in our communities will be a fitting tribute to, to Jo and, as she herself said, remind us all that we have far more in common with each other than things that divide us. Prime Minister. Well, I, I, I say to my honourable friend that I think he raises an extremely important point. I'm very happy to agree to him, with him that, what he, as he says, what is becoming known as the great get-together is a fitting and, I think, important tribute to our late colleague, Jo Cox. And I would like to commend her husband, Brendan, and I'm sure everybody around this house, across this House will wish to do so for the work that he's done. As my honourable friend says, it is important that we remember that there is more that brings us together than divides us. And I think this opportunity at this point of national reflection and celebration uh, of the strength of our communities is an important one. 
as we face this future together, we do stand at momentous times for this country, and I think it's important that we re remember that being united, united makes us strong, that we should recognise the things that unite us as a country and as a people, the bonds that we share together, and I think this is a very fitting tribute to our late colleague. Angus Robertson. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. In recent days, the Prime Minister has said that it is a key personal commitment to transform the way that domestic violence is tackled. And it's hugely welcome that she's called for ideas about how the treatment of victims can be improved and more convictions secured against abusers. Combating violence, Mr Speaker, against women and preventing domestic violence is the aim of the Istanbul Convention, which the UK has yet to ratify. So does the Prime Minister agree with members right across this House that the Convention should be ratified as a priority? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Prime Minister. The, the Right Honourable Gentleman has raised a particularly important subject, and as he says, it's one that I take particularly seriously. I work very hard on it as Home Secretary, and I continue to do as Prime Minister. There were still an estimated 1.3 million female victims of domestic abuse in the last year, and over 400,000 victims of sexual violence. He's right, we signed up to the Istanbul Con Convention. We are fully committed to ratifying it, and that's why we supported the Honourable Member for Banff and Buchan's Private Members Bill in principle at second reading and at committee stage. Uh, the measures we have in place in many pla uh, ways actually go further than the Convention, but I'm very clear that we need to maintain this momentum. That's why I'm setting up a ministerial working group to look at the legislation, uh, to look at how we can provide good support for victims, and to look at the possibility of a Domestic Violence Act in future. Robertson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, this Friday, the House of Commons will consider a bill on the Istanbul Convention, and uh, we know that government ministers have been working very hard with my colleague, the member for Banff and Buchan, who has cross-party support for her bill. Yeah, yeah. So given the importance of this issue and the Prime Minister's personal commitment that she's outlined again today, will she join me in encouraging members to support the bill and discourage any attempts to use parliamentary wrecking tactics yeah. to stop it? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very happy to join the Right Honourable Gentleman in that. I know that my Honourable Friend, the Minister for Vulnerability, has had a number of very constructive discussions with the Honourable Member for Banff and Buchan. The Government has tabled some mutually agreed amendments, uh, which the Government will be voting for this Friday. And I hope that all Honourable Friends who will be on Friday will be supporting those measures. This is an important bill. The Government has been supporting it, and I hope it will see support across all parts of this House. Mr William Rag. Mr Speaker, um, residents in the village of High Lane in my constituency are concerned by the 4,000 homes proposed under the Greater Manchester Spatial Framework, more than doubling the size of that village. Uh, what assurances can my right honourable friend, uh, the Prime Minister, give to my constituents that the Greenbelt is safe with this government? Minister. I'm, I'm very happy to give that uh, commitment to my honourable friend. The government is very clear that the Greenbelt must be protected. We are very clear that boundaries should only be altered when local authorities have fully examined all other reasonable options, and that if they do go down that route, then they should compensate by improving the quality or accessibility of remain, remaining Greenbelt land so that that can be enjoyed. I, I know the particular issue my honourable friend has raised. I believe the Greater Manchester Spatial Framework did lead to quite a number of uh, responses. There was a lot of interest in that consultation. It closed last month, and I'm sure all those views will be taken into account. Caroline Flint. Mr Speaker, last week the 
all-party group for children of alcoholics launched a manifesto for change. 2.5 million children are growing up in the home of a problem drinker. I did too. These children are twice as likely to have problems at school, three times more likely to consider suicide, four times more likely to become an alcoholic. Yet today, 138 local authorities have no plan to support these children. Will the Prime Minister work with the all-party group to establish the first ever government strategy to tackle this hidden problem that blights the lives of millions? The Honourable Lady has raised an important issue, and I know she recently spoke very movingly about her own experience, and I'm sure members across the House recognise the devastating impact that addiction can have on individuals and on their families. And so this is an important issue for her to raise. I mean, I think it's unacceptable that children bear the brunt of their parents' condition. It is important, and the government is committed to working with MPs, to working with health professionals and those affected to reduce the harm of addiction and get people the support that they need. And we will be looking very carefully at the proposals that the Honourable Lady has raised. Order. Closed question. Dr Julian Lewis. Question 9, Mr Speaker. Prime Minister. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. As I've made clear, I think it's absolutely appalling when people try to make a business out of dragging our brave troops through the courts. In the case of Northern Ireland, 90% of deaths were caused by terrorists. And it's essential that the justice system reflects this. It would be entirely wrong to treat terrorists more favourably than soldiers or police officers. And that's why, as part of our work to bring forward the Stormont House Agreement Bill, we will ensure that investigative bodies are under a legal duty to be fair, balanced and proportionate so that our veterans are not unfairly treated or disproportionately investigated. While welcoming that reply, it doesn't go quite as far as I and many other people would like. There is no prospect of new credible evidence coming forward against our veterans of the Troubles up to 40 years after the event, yet people are starting to use the same techniques in Northern Ireland against them as were used against veterans of Iraq. Surely the answer has to be a statute of limitations preventing the prosecution of veterans to do with matters that concerned prior to the date of the Belfast Agreement. Prime Minister. As my honourable friend knows, um, this is uh, an issue that we're looking at as part of the Stormont House Agreement. What we're doing is ensuring that the investigative bodies responsible for looking at deaths during the Troubles will operate in a fair, balanced and proportionate manner. We want cases to be considered in chronological order and we want these protections enshrined in legislation. We're going to be consulting fully on these proposals because we want to make sure that we do get this right. Gerald Jones. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. The new local housing allowance cap for social tenants, when introduced in 2019, will hit people in, on low income in my constituency of Merthyr Tidville and Rumney hard. While in places like Maidenhead the allowance will often exceed the average rent, the basic weekly allowance rate in Merthyr Tidville is £67 and the rent charged by Merthyr Valley's homes is £76, which is already amongst the lowest social housing rents in Wales. This will mean that tenants, including many older people, will be expected to find almost £500 a year towards their rent. Will the Prime Minister act now to issue clear guidance to at the very least exempt older people from these troop cuts and further ensure that the local housing allowance is in line with local rents? 
Yes. Um, well, I, I say to the honourable gentleman that I believe that local authorities are in a position. They have got a fund that they can exercise some discretion in relation to uh, this matter. There will be uh, instances varying across the uh, country, and there were some steps taken to ensure uh, that uh, particularly vulnerable people were not affected in the way that you suggested. Tanya Mathias. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, the lack of large-scale vaccine manufacturing has been described for our country as a national security issue, which will take many years to build up. Will the Prime Minister look into what more the government can do to address this highly critical health and defence concern? Well, my honourable friend is absolutely right to raise this in the context that she has done, and the government takes it very seriously. Being able to ensure that we can readily scale up vaccine production in the event of a pandemic is vitally important, as she says, to our national security. Um, the precise details are, and she will, I'm sure, understand, necessarily confidential, but I can assure her that we have provisions in place to make sure that urgently needed vaccines are available in the UK at short notice, including in the event of a pandemic. As an added contingency, we are funding a £10 million competition to establish a world-leading centre on vaccine manufacturing, but it is only part of the, of the picture because we're in a strong position. We have one of the most comprehensive and successful vaccination programmes in the world, backed up by £300 million in this year alone. Kerry McCarthy. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Last night, Bristol Council set its budget. Very difficult decisions made more difficult because of the abject failure of the previous Mayor to get a grip on the Council's finances. It's taken a Labour Mayor to face up to the challenge, but government cuts are making his task almost impossible, and devolution is simply asking us to do more with less. We did our bit last night in setting that budget. Will the Prime Minister now meet with the Mayor of Bristol to discuss the fairer funding deal that the people of Bristol deserve? Prime Minister! Um, I understand that my uh, right honourable friend, the Community Secretary, has indeed had such a meeting to discuss the issue that the Honourable Lady raised. Davis! <laughs> Thank you, Mr Speaker. Se 17 years ago, my constituent, Sue and Glyn Jones, received a phone call that no parent should ever have to take. The caller told them that their daughter, Kirsty, who was backpacking in Thailand, had been brutally murdered. The Thai authorities are due to close their investigation into Kirsty's murder soon, but as of yet, her case remains unsolved, her killer remains free, and her parents have neither justice nor closure. So can I ask my right honourable friend, to push the Thai authorities to use recently improved DNA techniques to bring the killer to justice, to endeavour to provide more support for families who've lost loved ones abroad, and finally, to ensure that Kirsty's personal effects are at last returned back home to her parents from Thailand. Prime Minister. Uh, I'm sure that the whole House will join me in offering condolences to the Jones family and in recognising the terrible trauma that they have been through as a result of uh, the killing of their daughter. Uh, it's obviously, as I'm sure my honourable friend recognises, not for the British government to interfere with police investigations that take place in another country. But I understand that the Foreign Office has been providing support. It remains ready to do so. And our embassy in Bangkok it will continue uh, to raise these issues, as it has been with the Thai government. And I'm sure that the Foreign Office will keep my honourable friend updated on any developments. Some. Thank you, Mr Speaker. In the Prime Minister's Lancaster House speech, she said of a future trade agreement with the EU, that no deal for Britain is better than a bad deal for Britain. 
In the spirit of consistency, will that rule also apply to any future trade negotiations with the United States of America, where President of Trump has put, said that America comes first? I can assure the Honourable Gentleman, as I have said consistently, we will be ensuring that when we negotiate trade deals with whichever countries it is around the world, they will be good deals for the UK. In the Same-Sex Marriage Act 2013, we took the power, uh, subject to a consultation and laying of an order, to give humanists in England and Wales uh, the opportunity to celebrate uh, marriages as they do in Scotland. We've had the consultation with 90% approval. There's even now been a reference to the Law Commission, which has concluded. Uh, can my right honourable friend now give her attention to laying this order and giving humanists in England and Wales the same rights and freedoms as they enjoyed very successfully in Scotland? Well, I, I, I recognise that this is an issue that my honourable friend has been following closely over uh, recent years. I think he recognises that this is a, an important area of law, it's a complex area of law, and we want to make sure that proposals are considered properly. That's why the Ministry of Justice is carefully examining the differences in treatments already exist within marriage law alongside the humanist proposals so that the differences can be minimised. And I'm sure my honourable friend will agree that it's both right and fair to approach it in that way. Nick Dakin. Yeah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My constituent, Kevin's chances of survival from pancreatic cancer were no better than his mother's, who died of that disease 40 years earlier. A disease soon to become uh, the fourth biggest cancer killer in the UK. Will the Prime Minister join with MPs across this House to champion a significant increase in uh, spending on pancreatic cancer research, which currently lags sadly behind that on other cancers. Prime Minister. Well, I think the, the Honourable Gentleman has raised a very important point, which obviously is of particular relevance in the case of the constituent that, he's, that he referred to. But it is the case, as he says, that pancreatic cancers is one of those cancers that it is very difficult to, uh, to deal with and to treat. Uh, and there has been a lot of attention over the years on certain cancers, like breast cancer increasingly, issues like bowel cancer and, and uh, prostate cancer. But I'm sure it's important that the appropriate attention is, is given to cancers which are more difficult, proving more difficult to deal with, like pancreatic. Neil Parrish. Uh, thank you very much, yeah. Mr Speaker. Um, in February 2008, Mr Barry Pring, the brother of one of my constituents, constituents was unlawfully killed in the Ukraine. Mr Pring's Ukrainian wife is clearly implicated in his death. Earlier this year, our, our, British, our, our coroner in Devon ruled Mr Pring was tricked into standing onto a carriageway before being run down by a car with a stolen licence plate, no lights and death was immediate. However, every time an investigating officer makes progress with this case in the Ukraine, they are replaced. This has happened ten times and the case is stalled. Can I implore my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, to raise this case with the Ukrainian Prime Minister so we can get justice and closure for, for Barry's mother, brother and the Pring family? Well, can I also say to my honourable friend that uh, uh, I hope... I'm sure that the whole House will join me in offering condolences to Barry's family uh, following his death in 2008. And I understand my honourable friend has discussed this case with my right honourable friend, the Foreign Secretary. 
Again, as I said in answer to an earlier question, it's not for the British government to interfere in the legal processes of another country, um, but the Foreign Office has been regularly raising this case with the Ukrainian authorities and will continue to do so. And it's my understanding that UK police have assisted the investigation on a number of occasions, and all information from the UK coroner's inquest will be passed on, and I'm sure the Foreign Office will keep my honourable friend updated again on any developments. Thank you. Tens of thousands of disabled people on the motability scheme have had their cars removed by this government. In November, the Disability Work and Health Minister said that they were looking at allowing PIP claimants to keep their car pending appeal. Next week, my constituent Margaret Gibson will lose her car, which she regards as a lifeline, despite a pending appeal in two decades receiving higher rate DLA. Can the Prime Minister update the House on the progress of this review to help Margaret and thousands like her? Yes. The, the, uh, the Honourable Gentleman raises an issue, obviously, about the way that these assessments are made and the, the implications of the decisions that are being taken on these. He referred, I think, if I heard him correctly, to a review in relation to, uh, to PIP uh, uh, and uh, PIP payments and the motability element of that. And if, if I may, I will write to him with further details. Derek Thomas. Thank you, Mr Speaker. It was a year, and now a year this week since Edward Hayne Community Hospital was temporarily closed due to fire safety concerns. There are now no community beds located in the towns of St Ives, Penzance or St Just or rural areas in between. GPs, residents and local campaigners agree with me that this valued community hospital needs to be opened as an urgent priority. Will my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, apply some pressure to NHS property services and Cornwall's NHS managers to find a way to get the building work done and open, this community, open these community beds? Well, Minister. I know this is a, obviously a concern for my honourable friend's constituents, and he's very right to raise it. Of course, I'm sure he recognises that the first priority must be to ensure that patients are being treated in a safe and secure environment. And I understand that the local CCG and NHS have been working closely to ensure that community hospital facilities in Cornwall are fit to deliver uh, that expectation. I think a review has already been undertaken into the repairs and improvements that are needed to bring the Edward Hayne Community Hospital up to a safe standard, and the CCG will be looking at the infrastructure and facilities it needs once a final local plan has been agreed. And obviously, my right honourable friend, the Health Secretary, has heard his representations. Caroline Lucas. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The government's business rates hike could devastate the local economy in my Brighton constituency. Brighton Pier is facing a 17% increase. The World Ends Pub 123% and Blanche House Hotel a 400% increase. Does the Prime Minister recognise that Brighton will be disproportionately affected and will she urgently set up both a discretionary fund to support small and micro businesses and agree to a full review of the whole system? Prime Minister. If we just stand back, business rates, of course, are based on the rental values of properties. And the rental values of properties do change over time. They go up and down. And, so, and it's right that rates change uh, to recognise that. That's the uh, principle of fairness that underpins the business rate system. We also, though, want to support businesses and recognise that for some business rates will go up when these revaluations take place. That's why we've put significant uh, funding in place for transitional relief. But I recognise that there has been particular concern that there will be some small businesses that are particularly adversely affected by the result of uh, this revaluation. And that's why I've asked the Chancellor and the Community Secretary to make sure there's appropriate relief in those hardest cases. Sir Julian Brazier. Mr Speaker, 
my right honourable friend gave a sympathetic answer to our honourable friend uh, for the new forest, and I know she's taken a particular interest in this matter. But could I put it to her that for many of us there is something profoundly wrong with a criminal justice system which can pursue veterans who risk their lives for this country 40 years on, long after any possibility of new evidence, while at the same time is capable of paying out a million pounds to a terror suspect? Prime Minister. To my honourable friend, in relation to this issue in Northern Ireland, we are, of course, that the, the issue of these legacy bodies was a part of the Stormont House Agreement, and what we are doing is working to deliver on that Stormont House Agreement. As I said in answer to my honourable friend, the member for New Forest East, the overwhelming majority of uh, our armed forces serving in Northern Ireland served with great distinction, and we owe them a huge debt of gratitude. The situation we have at the moment is that there are cases being pursued against uh, officers who served in Northern Ireland. What we want to see as we develop the legacy body under the Stormont House Agreement is a proportionate, fair and balanced approach to that. As I said earlier, we recognise that the majority of, uh, of uh, individuals um, were actually uh, the result uh, who suffered were actually the result at the hands of terrorists. Andy Burnham. Speaker. On the steps of Downing Street, the Prime Minister pledged to end the burning injustice of so few working-class boys going to university. Can she tell me how cutting every single secondary school in Lee, Wigan, Rochdale, Trafford and Manchester through her new school's funding formula is going to do anything other than make that injustice even worse? Prime Minister! What I want to ensure through the education system that we provide is that we do have a good school place for every child. I'm pleased to say that under uh, Conservatives in government we have seen, uh, seen 1.8 million more children in good or outstanding schools. We are, looking at the, uh, we are looking at the funding formula for schools. We are listening to the comments that have been made. Uh, but but I'm, uh, everybody across this House will recognise that for some time now it has been said that the existing funding formula is not transparent and is unfair. We are looking at uh, a new formula, but I can assure the right honourable gentleman that our education policy is about ensuring that every child has the opportunity to go as far as their talents and their hard work enables them to do. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. You saw, Mr. Speaker, you saw yourself firsthand what a cup run means for a town and a club like Sutton. I wonder, with, with, now with AFC Wimbledon out of the picture, I wonder if my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, will join me in congratulating Sutton for such a spirited performance on Monday, and join me in, in wishing Lincoln well to keep the non-league spirit alive in the next round. And finally, congratulations. Honourable gentleman must be heard. Yeah. And finally, congratulating and thanking Arsenal for their absolute generosity in allowing Sutton to keep a little bit of an extra slice of the FA Cup pie. A neat, a neat reference to pie, if I may say so, to my honourable friend there at the uh, at the end. I'm very happy to congratulate Sutton on the uh, on the. Uh, uh, extremely good <laughs> on the extremely good run that they had in the FA Cup it is important it does it does make a huge difference to uh, to local areas when their football club is able to progress to that extent 
and is able to be up there with the big boys and do as well as they did. And I'm very happy also to congratulate Lincoln City, I see uh, our honourable friend is sitting next to him, on the success that they have shown and that we wish them every well for the future. Uh, finally, Michelle Thompson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, the, Green, the Green Investment Bank, co-located in Edinburgh, is currently being sold, and some recent newspaper reports suggest that the contract could soon be concluded. This despite the UK's stated focus on research and development, and the fact that no realistic guarantees have yet been given as to the continuation of a proper headquarters and board based in Edinburgh. Will the Prime Minister commit to looking again at why a sale at this time is not in the best interest of Edinburgh, not in the best interest of the Green Agenda and not in the best interest of the UK taxpayer? Before I, before I respond on the issue the Honourable Lady has raised, I'm afraid I owe a couple of apologies in the Chamber. I'm sorry to my Honourable Friend, the Member for Stroud, in mixing up with my Honourable Friend, the Member for Lincoln, so I apologise. Uh, I apologise. I was obviously getting carried away with the football fever that uh, our Honourable Friend, the Member for Sutton, had uh, introduced into the, uh, into the Chamber. Um, can I say to the Honourable Lady, as she raises an issue in relation to the Green Investment Bank, if I may, uh, I will write to her with uh, a response to the question that she's raised. I think it's fair to say that in dealing with the matter, the Prime Minister has deployed a very straight bat. We'll leave it there. Order. Point of order, Mr Chris Matheson.